Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Ben Baldanza here with our weekly tour of the airline business. Thanks so much for joining Chris Chimes and me here at Airlines Confidential. Hey, Ben, and hey, listeners. We're going to follow our regular flight plan of some airline news before we get to our guest, Shashan McGean, founder of Simplifying. So let's get to it. Ben, first up, I know it's frustrating to some of our listeners that we continue to give only passing reference to maybe the top airline news story in the U.S. right now, the proposed Spirit Frontier merger, which has turned into a bidding war as JetBlue entered the picture. To remind our listeners, Ben sits on the board of JetBlue and is precluded from public discussion right now. But if you're following this saga, JetBlue sweetened its offer, which resulted in Frontier offering a breakup fee that had previously not been included in the deal. JetBlue then came back with an additional value to add to its offer. Spirit had a shareholders meeting scheduled for Friday, June 10th, this last week that just passed, to consider the Frontier offer, but it has postponed that meeting until June 30th. So this is me talking, not representing Ben, but it seems pretty clear that the JetBlue offer is getting some traction and forcing Frontier to react. Whether that leads to a change of sentiment within the Spirit management team and Spirit shareholders remains to be seen, but Frontier's original offer is looking weaker by the day, and I think they know that. So everybody can keep watching it. We're going to deal with it like we just did, but uh, thanks for understanding. Ben, next up, perhaps even bigger news with more implications for the entire airline industry. The U.S. dropped its testing requirements for COVID for international arrivals via air transport last week, uh, going to affect just a few days ago, with airlines pretty booked for the summer, including many international flights. How big of a deal is this in the short term? Is this going to really make a difference in a, in a third quarter bump, or is it going to be a bigger deal in Q4 when summer demand drops off and the industry needs to fill more empty seats? Give us your thoughts. Well, I think this is an extremely big deal, Chris. The industry's lobby group, A4A, and the Air Transport Association and others have been calling for this move. So it's now being true that you don't need a negative test to board a flight to the U.S. Anyone who wants, you know, sweet memories can go back and listen to our show where Chris Sloan talked about being trapped in St. Lucia for 10 days. <laughs> and now he wouldn't be trapped, right? I think this is actually great for the industry. It's also really positive on getting back to a truly normal state from what was at once a completely shut down pandemic state. Why I think it's a big deal, even with full flights this summer, Chris, is a couple of things. One, the industry has pulled back from some of its flying this summer. Not because of this rule, because of staff shortages and such. 
So maybe if the staffing things look better, we might see some more flights get scheduled on relatively short notice to take advantage of new demand this summer. That's a possibility. But also one thing that I don't see as much, maybe some of our listeners do and might want to chime in on this, is how much of this summer's demand is U.S. people traveling abroad and people from other countries coming to the U.S. And my sense is that second category, people coming to the U.S., has been really constrained because of this rule of requiring the negative test to get on beforehand. You can have an even falsified test that says you're positive when you're not, but now you can't take your flight and maybe you have problems getting a refund from your airline or lose whatever you plan to do while you were here. So I think just balancing the load of where people are coming from and going to is real positive for the industry. Plus, just more demand is a good thing. Might in the short term mean even higher prices. We're already seeing higher prices. But as we look out into the third quarter, fourth quarter, and into next year, like you suggested, Chris, I think this is there's nothing but positive news here with this going away on a whole bunch of fronts. Yeah, I think in the short term, it's just a huge sigh of relief for so many travelers. I mean, I, we've got a family trip planned, and within minutes, I was getting texts from wife and kids, and did you see this? Did you see this? And I'm guessing that that went on in households around the country. So it's certainly a psychological boost uh, as well as a financial boost. But um, And I think people will just travel with more confidence this summer if they had an international trip already planned. I think that's right. I'm actually going to London at the end of this month. It'll be my first international trip since the pandemic. And I sort of breathed a sigh of relief when I saw this. Okay, great. I'm not going to have to be tested to get on the flight back. I'm like many listeners, I'm sure I'm vaxxed and boosted and I haven't had COVID yet, thankfully. Um, So it's not like I'm worried that I'm going to catch COVID while I'm there. But I was worried that, well, who knows what happens with testing. And if I did get something, would I be trapped in the UK for a couple of weeks on my dime? And knowing that can't happen now feels good for sure. Well, I think it's safe to say that the folks at Seabury are doing some analysis on the impact of testing requirements. For their clients, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And, you know, having more flights this summer, Chris, means more airplanes flying and more crews, but also reliable equipment. So that's why this show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Ben, here's a new take on the pilot shortage or alleged pilot shortage. A startup 
European ultra-low-cost carrier Norse Atlantic Airways is beginning Boeing Dreamliner service between Oslo, London, and several U.S. cities this month. It's hiring 50 pilots to start, and they are reporting that they have received 3,000 applications for those 50 openings. So I guess there's no pilot shortage when it comes to flying wide bodies on transatlantic routes for an untested carrier. Well, that's great news for North Atlantic and great news for people who are going to want to get to Oslo nonstop from a number of cities in the U.S. That's great. I think there's a little mix and match going on here. When the U.S. carriers are all trimming capacity and talking about labor shortages, especially pilot shortages, they're talking about their operations in the U.S., Now, we had Catherine Creedy on earlier, and she got lots of people upset when she said, maybe we should let foreign pilots come here and get a green card to fly for our airlines. And everybody got upset at her for that. But in a sense, Norse is taking advantage of that, right? They're not hiring U.S.-based crews. They're hiring from all over Europe, Middle East, maybe Central Asia as well for their flying. That's what that business model is. So in that context, I'd agree there's not really a pilot shortage. That says nothing, however, about the number of pilots that Southwest Airlines or American Airlines or JetBlue Airlines or Spirit Airlines has available to fly for them this summer that are trained in their procedures, covered by their CBAs and things like that. Or if you're sitting in Pocatello, Idaho, or Wichita Falls, or whatever, relying on regional service, this isn't going to help you either. But you know, certainly there's a lot of interest in being a pilot, and there's a lot of interest in flying wide bodies, and um, that's going to continue. The issue is how do we kind of deal with that here in the U.S., where it's, it is clearly impacting operations. That's right, Chris. And the pilot shortage in the U.S., to the extent there is, maybe I should say alleged like you did, is hitting the smaller, lower cost airlines more because early career pilots at those airlines, if you're only sort of a one to three year pilot at a Spirit or Frontier or JetBlue or Alaska or an airline like that, More of those pilots are leaving those companies to go work for the American Uniteds and Deltas, not because they're getting a raise. And in fact, in many cases, they might be taking a step back just a little in pay based on what they were earning at their current airline. But as they're thinking about their lifelong earnings, they know with one of those big airlines, they can spend time later in their career flying the really big jets, really long haul, which they can't do at some of the lower cost, smaller airlines. So there's a lot of complication to this whole deal about uh, whether or not there is a pilot shortage or not. And we've got a question coming up where we'll talk a little more about that. Yep, we're not gonna we're not gonna be done with this topic anytime soon. <laughs> That's right. We'll be right back with Shashang Nagim from Simplifying. He's a great guest. You'll learn a lot from him. Stay tuned for more Airlines Confidential. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. AeroData is a Garmin company. 
Our guest this week is an expert in the airline business and well-regarded consultant to uh, hopefully many of our listeners or many more listeners. Shashank Nagim is the founder of Simplifying. Shashank, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be joining you and Ben on this podcast. We always start by asking our guests to give a little self-introduction. So why don't you tell our listeners about uh, your background in the business and what do you do for your clients? Sure. Um, I uh, live in Whistler, BC and in Canada, up in the mountains, but I've got jet fuel in my veins and love the airline business like a lot of your listeners probably do. And over the last almost 15 years now, Simply Flying has worked with just over 100 airlines and airports globally specifically helping them build trust for their brands amongst their customers and other stakeholders. So uh, when we started out in 2008 uh, to build brand trust, airlines had to provide customer service on social media and uh, you know sell tickets via Facebook and Instagram. And we became leaders in social media and then digital strategy from crisis comps to ancillary uh, via mobile. And two years ago when COVID hit, uh, once again, to build trust, airlines really needed to share what they're doing in terms of health safety measures. And once again, we became leaders in COVID health safety measures, helping airlines build trust. And going forward, uh, we truly believe that the one thing that will help rebuild trust in travel is getting sustainability right. And not just the measures, but also the stories. So that's uh, what we are working on. I'm also an author of a book called Soar, uh, which um, highlights eight of the best airline brands in the world and how they managed to build strong brands over a long time in a very competitive landscape. And these are lessons for all industries by this aviation. Well, that's great, Shashank. And we'll make sure to put that book up on our books resources on the Airlines Confidential website as well. What encouraged you to start simplifying? How long has the business been running? And what is your main objective of the publication? You told us what you're working on now, but I imagine that wasn't what you originally thought about when you started it. <laughs> right. No, that's a very good question. So back in 2008, I was working at an MIT startup in Boston. I have a technology background, but I used to like planes a lot. And I had also previously been a contributing author to two books on branding for a professor of mine. And there was that interest at the intersection of airlines and marketing and branding. And there really wasn't anything I could read online. There really wasn't anything that was pushing the boundaries in this. So I came up and designed a 6X model, which is now also detailed in my book, uh, which focused on six key aspects of the airline brand and how airlines should focus on these aspects to uh, build long-term lasting brands. So it was really that gap around the intersection of airlines, marketing, and then of course technology at the end of it uh, that drove the creation of Simplifying back in 2008. So I want to get back to your brand trust comments at the top of the conversation. We've been talking a lot about labor shortages and summer flight service challenges that many are predicting. How does this all factor into uh, airlines building better trust with their customer? Yeah, very good question and very relevant as well. If any of you have flown recently, you can see how chaotic it is. Uh, I'm flying next week to New York and I'm, <laughs> I'm curious how it turns out uh, with, with two little kids. And, you know, this boils down to the crux of the matter that 
if an airline is able to not scale up as quickly as travel is rebounding, then that definitely impacts the brand. Uh, where you know customers are now traveling after two years, potentially many of them, especially internationally, and airlines need to take care of them, and that's where they're struggling. And there are so many stakeholders involved. There are the TSA agents, which are government contractors. There are the airport uh, staff. There are the outsourced ground handling crew, uh, which airlines typically don't own anymore. And then, of course, there's the airline crew themselves, pilots and cabin crew. And because there are shortages across all of those areas, unfortunately, uh, the brand experience is, is dipping and it's suffering. And that's where I think if airlines really want to bolster, they should, you know, ultimately the customer just wants to be informed. Is it going to be t- taking me three hours to go through customs and immigration? Hey, just let me know so that for my kids, I pack some snacks while they're standing in that line rather than being cranky and uh, upset. Um, passengers just want to know and be it through social media, be it through notifications on a mobile app um, or through FID screens even, just inform passengers. And I think that will help alleviate the situation, if not uh, improve it a lot. Shashank, what do you think about business travel? We've been discussing on this podcast in various times whether all business travel is going to return, whether certain aspects of it may permanently be changed. How do you think about that sector of the business and how the pandemic has affected it? Definitely, Ben. And you, of course, are a veteran of this and you know this better than anyone else. I feel personally that the day trip, the international day trip is dead uh, from a business travel perspective. I personally used to live in Toronto and I remember doing day trips to London, UK, day trips to Mexico City, day trips to Seattle. um, And that was completely normal. But just because of all of these international restrictions and changes in laws, PCR tests, antigen tests, and all of these different requirements that have come in, borders shutting and closing, I just feel that the international day trip will not be revived. Having said that, I've seen evidence of uh, people going on day trips for their business travel domestically because there aren't that many restrictions. Also, the other thing that I'm seeing is uh, two aspects. One, business trips become longer. So uh, there was a friend of mine who was a banker in London. He was recently in the US. He would have typically done a New York day trip and flown back to London. But now he came to New York. He did the West Coast of the US and then flew back after a week after doing all of the US cities. So you know, you fly over, you make it much more productive, then you go back. The other trend is something I participated in myself, which is the whole leisure uh, segment where a business trip becomes a family trip or a leisure trip as well. And on my last business trip, we had worked for two to three days, but I brought my family along and we stayed in the new country, which the family had never been to for uh, another two weeks. And that was very enriching and refreshing in the end. We'll have more with Shashang in just a moment. But a reminder that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. So what else do you think has been permanently changed from the pandemic as it relates to airline travel and airline customer behavior or expectations? I think that the customers, especially 
right now as you know many of them are flying for the first time are still expecting to see certain uh, sanitization measures and health and safety measures visibly in place be it you know a not super crowded lounge perhaps if that's possible to in certain countries even masking where it's federally mandated uh, people feel comfortable if they see more people mask than not of course in you know it's a different ball game in the us but i'm referring to international travel so there are uh, lounges for example which are seeking health safety certification from simply flying because they want to showcase that you know what we we take care of uh, your health and safety and there are 60 different measures that we are auditing for them and we are seeing a huge upsurge in not just airlines seeking the certification but also lounges so i think that's something that's going to linger on for a while in fact if you remember during sars back in 2003 people in asia pacific used to wear masks for a very long time even though it was not required if you're on a flight to hong kong or to singapore and i grew up in singapore uh, it was common to wear masks many years after sars was gone so i think some of the impact might be lingering let me follow up a second and ask you specifically about the certification that you offer and you know that how is your expertise determined and how is it demonstrated to your clients so back in the fall of 2020 jointly with apex simply flying launched a health safety certification for airlines globally and there was literally a mad rush to get certified by airlines who were seeking to showcase how they are taking care of the passengers be it enhanced sanitization measures and wiping down to uv cleaning of the aircraft to uh, you know delta installing uh, hand sanitizers at the bulkhead simple things but they go a long way in ensuring peace of mind and we launched that we have certified now over 35 airlines globally and last year then we launched a lounge certification as well once again because the highest yielding passengers or the most important customers for an airline typically use the lounge and spend some time there so giving them peace of mind is also important um we launched it last year with uh, saudi arabian airlines saudia as the first uh, airline to get their brand new lounge in jeddah certified and now we are working with multiple other airlines to get theirs done as well once again this goes back to my original point it's about building brand trust what can you do to calm nerves to ensure peace of mind and post covid or during covid health safety measures were critical in ensuring brand trust That's great and let's go on this sustainability idea a little more. You've actually started a podcast about this. And we know from experience that creating new content every week or however often you plan to update this can be a challenge sometimes. Fortunately, with a broad topic like airlines, there's always things to talk about. Tell us about this new podcast, how people get it, and the kind of things you plan to discuss on it. Absolutely, Ben. Um like I said, going forward, I believe that rebuilding trust in travel will require airlines to get sustainability right. But when the Simply Flying team started diving into this topic, we realized it's a wild west, both from measures perspective, do you do carbon offset or carbon sequestration? What's the difference? do you plant trees somewhere or do you suck carbon out of the air do you invest in electric aircraft or a hybrid aircraft there's so many questions and it's really confusing which is why i decided to launch the podcast to make sense of this very fast evolving field 
around aviation sustainability. The podcast is called Sustainability in the Air, pun intended. We're now just wrapping up the first season with 10 episodes, by the way. So uh, just yesterday, we launched the seventh episode. The idea is to have airline CEOs on alternate episodes and non-airline CEOs on the other alternate episodes. So I've had, for example, the co-founder of Universal Hydrogen, who gave us a nice lowdown into what's the difference between pink hydrogen and gray hydrogen and blue and green hydrogen. I've had uh, Harbor Air CEO talk about the world's first scheduled airline to fly electric planes. I've had Scott Kirby from United uh, speak about his investment into uh, electric aircraft in the future, as well as Boom, um, the supersonic jet. And I've had Tony Douglas at Etihad. So it's a very nice mix of airline leadership thinking about how they're tackling this. And it's a nice mix to deep dive into certain technologies on how the technology providers are thinking about this problem as well. So then what's your prediction about the U.S. industry in particular and their pledge to be net zero by 2050? Do you think they can make it? I think so. I'm quite optimistic about the aviation industry getting to net zero. It definitely helps to have supporting government policies. For example, the Biden administration recently announced support for SAF, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, uh, that will definitely drive up adoption. There are also a lot of players within the U.S. from Joby to others uh, that are looking at new aircraft technologies to uh, reduce emissions. It's very encouraging to see simple measures like Alaska Airlines is taking, having boxed water on board and no single-use plastic, to really visionary initiatives like United Airlines is taking which is to invest in the future of aircraft technology and carbon sequestration. So between those two ends of the spectrums, I think we've got a very good chance. Uh, if you look at Delta, for example, Delta already offsets 100% of, the def- of their flight. So if you're flying Delta today, you're flying carbon neutral. If you're flying JetBlue today, you're flying carbon neutral. And Ben, thanks for making sure that that uh, happens. So <laughs> as it is, uh, there are lots of measures being taken by airlines. They're doing the best they can. And as the industry matures, as more people adopt things like SAF, the cost is going to come down, the green premium is going to come down, and that will drive further adoption. I have a follow-up on that, Shashank, which is I saw an Airbus presentation where they sort of floated this idea that maybe by 2035, they would be talking about a hydrogen-powered plane with much of the technology (laughs) challenge being how to store, move, and and load the planes with the hydrogen. Because obviously, you know, if you asked 100 people what word follows hydrogen, most of them would probably say bomb, right? (laughs) And so, so, but... That said, this is really an exciting idea to think not only how do you offset the fuel, the carbon emissions like is going on today, or not only can you go with sustainable aviation fuel, which still puts emissions in the atmosphere, but of course, those emissions help grow plants, which help create the fuel and become sustainable. But the fact that we could have airplanes that don't even put carbon emissions is really amazing. What do you think about that as a technology? I'm actually very excited about it, Ben. Um, I dug really deep with the founder of Universal Hydrogen on this, and he's a, he's an MIT professor. 
so he could really geek out <laughs> around the benefits of hydrogen and how it works. And it turns out hydrogen, you know, I asked him about Hindenburg, not the hydrogen bomb. So you're absolutely right. There are perceptions in the minds of the customers, you know, is hydrogen safe? It turns out it is indeed now safe. It definitely evolved a lot from the Hindenburg days. And, you know, it comes down to storage of hydrogen and transportation of hydrogen. And if, and the Airbus concept is not just about a new plane that uses hydrogen, having completely clean energy. It's also about uh, storing and transportation of hydrogen. So there is no leakage and there are very low risks in that. So I'm pretty excited about the zero emission airplanes uh, that Airbus is proposing. I'm hoping to see what comes out of Boeing's kitty in response to this. Again, no one technology is the silver bullet. Hydrogen will play its role in different regions. SAF will play its own role right away because it can be, you know, it can be pumped into any aircraft without any mechanical changes to the aircraft itself. I spoke with uh, Pratt and Whitney's chief engineer, who's working on the new GDF engine, and they are planning to go build engines that can take 100% SAF as well. So there's going to be multiple technologies tackling different aspects. So there's SAF right away. There's electric aircraft for short distance, like Harbor Air is doing, uh, which is coming in the next five to ten years. There are eVTOLs, which will you know rethink regional travel, and then of course there's hydrogen. The hardest one to crack, of course, is long haul travel because you can't have a, an airplane that replaces today uh, the triple seven or an A three eighty or an A three fifty, and that's where I think the industry needs to really put their heads together and think: okay, how can we do things differently here? Can it just be SAF? Can it be something else? Talk to us about the phenomenon of flight shaming, which was kind of a thing before the pandemic, especially coming out of Europe, but kind of died down during the pandemic. Do you think this is going to come back? Do you think it has some legs with regard to the public conversation? Yeah, I think uh, flight shaming is something customers are aware of. Airlines need to become familiar with it. And it's not just uh, European airlines who need to care. It's anyone who flies to Europe because that's where the movement has been the strongest. But also, awareness of this movement is coming to Canada. We actually had a few federal ministers who had to resign for flying during the pandemic. That's how big flight shaming was uh, within Canada. And it's it's a known risk that airlines should address. In crisis communications, known risks are things like union strikes. You know it can happen and you have a crisis communications plan for that. Hence, it won't help if airline CEO says, oh, Greta is fake news, which I've actually heard an airline CEO say. That is just going to come back to bite you. It's important to acknowledge what these people are saying. It's important to then share and state our own truth as an industry. What is it exactly that we are doing to address the situation and fly greener uh, as an industry? So I have a follow-up on that, Shashank, which is, by most estimates, world aviation contributes somewhere between 2 and 5% of global carbon emissions. Is it your sense that the perception is that the industry produces a much larger share of the problem? Yes, indeed. The perception is that industry is a much bigger problem. Uh, the reality is actual... CO2 emissions are indeed 2 to 5%. 
But then things start getting added up pretty quickly. If you look at radiative forcing, which is non-carbon emissions, it doubles. So, for example, just to geek out a little, you know those contrails we grew up as kids looking up in the sky? They look so beautiful, at least to me. I was always enamored as an aviation geek looking at these contrails. But these contrails are very hot water vapor, which then condense very quickly and are responsible for, you know, radiating back to Earth a lot more heat than the actual carbon footprint of the airliner. So simple things like contrails need to actually go. I wouldn't be surprised if contrails go away in the next 20 to 30 years because they actually cause a lot of harm. Moreover, if we zoom out further, not just from the aircraft itself, aviation as an industry indeed contributes to maybe 3% of carbon emissions. But tourism is responsible for 8% of carbon emissions globally. So you don't just fly to a new place and not stay in a resort. You don't just fly. Aviation cannot be looked at in isolation. We have to look at addressing the end-to-end tourism issue when it comes to having a net zero approach. And I think that's that's a challenge that most people often uh, ignore. I'm not going to ask you to identify him or her, but in all your consulting, have you encountered any airline executives who just didn't get it with regard to sustainability? Yeah, it's okay. I'll be fair. I, I wouldn't say they don't get it, but they twist sustainability to fit their own goals and messages. And that's not wrong, to be very honest. Uh, if Frontier says that they're the greenest airline in America, because they have high-density light seats on their plane, on a per-fuel basis, indeed, they consume way lesser than the older Delta aircraft uh, wide-body 767s that Delta has in their fleet for a very long time. But the real truth is that Frontier didn't buy these planes because they were greener. They bought these planes with new engines because they were more fuel efficient. They got these lighter seats to drive up load factors and also reduce the weight of the plane. The green part is a side effect. Um, there's this uh, company, technology startup, which recently launched a product where if a flight is overbooked, I as a passenger would get a notification to rebook on another flight. And they, this, this is great. I mean, great solution from a revenue management perspective. Overbooked passengers voluntarily choosing to be on another flight uh, in return for some miles. But the entire product was launched as a green product. Like, oh, we're going to you know, make sure that empty, fly, empty planes fly full or fuller and uh, because the passengers are rebooking themselves. But, you know, spin is dangerous. Spin is something passengers and journalists and climate activists are very intelligent to decipher through. And that's what the industry has to be careful about. Uh, I spoke to an airline executive in India recently, and he said, Shishang, listen, we're not doing much for the next four to five years because the government doesn't require us to do. And that's fair because his customers still sort by price and then schedule and the government doesn't have any strict regulations or requirements. So why should he care if his local domestic market customers don't care? So again, it's, you know, horses for courses, but this is something that is going to blow up in their faces if executives do not uh, think about it today. There's an old uh, PR saying, don't believe your own bullshit. So sometimes uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that might be a phrase you want to wheel out there. 
And some cynics have said that Frontier calls themselves green simply because that's the primary color in their livery. (laughs) 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 Well, Zizhak, this has been great. You cover so many things in the industry and you've been following the industry for so long. What are the biggest things you see facing the industry right now that we haven't talked about yet? Sort of beyond sustainability, labor shortage, things like that. You know, Ben, you and I, well, you have been in the industry for way longer than I have been, but a lot of us are in the industry for the love of aviation, for the love of planes. I truly believe that flying is magical. I still remember my first flight as a kid on an Aeroflot Illusion from Delhi to Singapore when I was 12. And I will never forget that, even though I reeked off cigarette smoke at the end of the flight. You know, <laughs> flying is magical. Uh, I saw the my my daughter's eyes light up when they first flew looking at the clouds beneath i think the industry needs to bring magic back to flying and that should be an underlying goal or aim for everyone in the industry the the suppliers the ecosystem how can we make flying magical again and yes it's hard because sometimes there might be too many people at the airport and the security lines are too long and there are not enough tsa agents and there are not enough pilots and flight attendants. But if the entire industry thinks about, hey, what was it that made flying magical for me? Why am I in this industry? I think that's a very deep emotional uh, pull factor to for us who remain in this industry, who keep trying new things. I'll be very honest, uh, when COVID hit, Simply Flying's business was down 98%. We were losing one client a week between February to April of 2020. It wasn't easy. Uh, I wasn't sure if we will survive. I wasn't sure if uh, we will continue with our mission to help airlines build trust. But then we kept trying. Uh, We launched five new products during COVID. Three of them failed and fell flat on their face, but two really worked. One of which was the health safety certification that I told you about. And now going forward, we truly believe that if we can help the industry get their sustainability efforts as well as their sustainability communication and stories, right? Then we have a very good chance of bringing the magic back to flying and helping rebuild trust and travel. Well, that's an absolutely wonderful vision and a great way to close. Thank you so much, Shashank, for your great vision. We'll encourage everyone to listen to your podcast as well as ours. I can confirm now that your book is already up on our website, so people (laughs) can click on it and uh, take a look at it there. And thank you so much for your time and great insights. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. It's always a pleasure to be speaking with you and uh, Chris as well. I loved uh, chatting and uh, happy to bring magic back to flying. Thanks for joining us, Shashank. Thank you. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Shashang Nagim for talking to us. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. 
Ben, our listener Joe from Phoenix sent us a quick note saying, I love your podcast. I recently heard you question Alpa's assertion that there isn't a pilot shortage, and we just talked about that as well. Here's their response, and he sent along a link. We're going to post this analysis to this week's show notes, but in short, Alpa is showing no interest in moving off the 1,500-hour training rule, among other things. Ben, what was your take on the document that Joe sent along? Thank you for the document, Joe. It was very interesting. I think there were some interesting points made in this from ALPA. I found it interesting that they're supporting sticking with the 1,500-hour rule. I don't remember them, although I may be wrong about this, but I don't remember them being really supportive of that when it was created. Maybe they were, but maybe now they, they think they like it. They've also quoted Delta and American and a couple other airlines saying that they feel good about the number of pilots they have. This gets back to what I just said earlier. Some airlines have a career path and a set of opportunities for pilots that make it easier for them to attract people than other airlines. So it's certainly possible that some airlines are seeing more pilot pressure, more pilots leaving, and more friction in hiring a new pipeline of pilots than others. And when you talk about the biggest airlines like Delta and American saying that there's not a challenge right now, well, it it doesn't really say to me that that means there's not a challenge anywhere. Now, Spirit and Frontier were also both quoted, and they talked about the fact that since they have a quick upgrade to captain's position, that they feel more of a tailwind there. And if, in fact, all of the industry was seeing that and feeling that, I might agree with Alpa that maybe talks of pilot shortages are um, overblown. Yet, when it comes to this summer, I think that you can reconcile everything Alpa said in your note, Joe, with the reality many airlines are seeing. It's now the middle of June when we're recording this. The summer is here. Flights are full. Airlines want to add even more flights for what is very strong demand and now getting stronger with the removal of testing for international arrivals. And as airlines look to schedule the month of August and the month of July and early September, and they're looking at the pilots on their roster that are type rated for their airline, that have gone through their procedures, trained for their procedures, available to fly, they're not seeing as many as they would like. That doesn't mean that they don't have a pipeline that says by next summer they'll be fine. That doesn't mean that they can't, over the next five years, support all the growth in the industry. But I think you can look at everything Alpa said in that note, which was a well-written note. Alpa has smart economists and does good work. But what they didn't say is that every airline in the U.S. can fly as much as they want this summer. And that is the real problem with the pilot shortage. So I'm going to take a little bit of an exception to what you just said in the context of it being well-written. And I'm sure there's some folks at Alpo that are very proud of this document. To me, it looked like it was 
like a, an alert that went out encouraging pilots to call their congressman or congresswoman and say, don't do anything about the pilot shortage because there isn't there is none. And they're certainly free to take that point of view. But on the one hand, they said uh, there is no pilot shortage and laid out all these arguments. And then they said, but if you wanted to do something, here's some things you could do, including grants to pilot training programs and schools, relieving debt for pilots who, uh, for students who are training to be pilots. There 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 was a laundry list of things that are on the discussion table with regard to how to solve the pilot shortage. So they were acknowledging some of the things that people are saying would be useful, but then arguing there's no pilot shortage. I think they're just <laughs> trying to like stay in their bunker and and not admit there's a fight going on. But I think everybody needs to get to the table to solve this. There, Like you said, there is a pilot shortage as you look at U.S. operations and pulling down especially regional service and thinning out some mainline flying, there is a pilot shortage. The cause of it might be up for debate, but there is a pilot shortage with regard to who's qualified and capable to fly aircraft today, next month, September, October, whenever in the short term that I think all the aviation stakeholders need to get to the table about. Good conversation, Chris, and I think you just nailed it. Thanks, Joe, for sending that document along, too. And then, Chris, Brendan from Austin, Texas, wrote in about the ongoing problems at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport that we've talked about in the last few shows. Hi, Ben and Chris. I passed through Schiphol last Monday, and it was a mess. My Delta flight was late, so I missed my connection to Oslo, Interesting. Maybe you can go nonstop. <laughs> knows, right? I'm a Delta Platinum, so I was able to be rebooked in the lounge, but it still took 90 minutes for me to see an agent. The only option was to route me via Charles de Gaulle in Paris, and I got to Oslo 15 hours late. The line for non-premium passengers at Transfer 2 was probably 400 people deep, so it was truly a mess. That being said, Charles de Gaulle was also overwhelmed with delays and cancellations, so maybe Schiphol is actually being most reasonable about the mess at European airports. Now, if you remember, Chris, we recommended maybe people connect in another (laughs) European airport for a while, or at least I did. Maybe I overstated the case there. (laughs) Well, first of all, Brendan, thanks for writing in, you know, after we talked about Amsterdam last week, then I was, as I was watching and reading news items about aviation, yeah, there have been kind of pop-up strikes at Charles de Gaulle, like was just mentioned. That was the basis for the disruptions there. There are threats and spontaneous strikes taking place at Italian airports. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, again, with labor laws being different, these Impromptu strikes or one-day strikes out of the blue can't really happen in the U.S. aviation system like they can in Europe, whether it be baggage handlers or air traffic controllers or pilots or whatever else. These these things are apt to happen more often in Europe. It doesn't pretend well for the summer. Um, We've been talking a lot about the heavy demand we expect to see and with the lifting of the 
testing requirements for international travel. Again, there's going to be more demand. I, I just think that these European carriers need to do more to get their house in order on this. I mean, one of the benefits of this new generation of aircraft has been the ability to overfly hubs and do more direct point-to-point service from U.S. cities to secondary cities. You know, it used to be the world went through Heathrow and De Gaulle and Frankfurt. You don't have to do that now to get to major European cities. There's a lot more nonstop flying, but, you know, hubs are still a way of life. They're still going to be important and they have to work. And I don't know what to say to Brendan other than you're right. There's multiple pain points uh, across Europe right now, just like there was in the U.S. last summer. But it's not even summer. It's it's the beginning of the summer travel season, but technically we're not even into the summer season of starting on June 21st, and we're already seeing this. So um, I think air travelers and airline employees traveling for work are going to need to uh, take an extra dose of patients' medication uh, as they start flying to Europe this summer. I think that's right, Chris. And this new rule where you don't have to be tested is going to put even more pressure in a sense, because especially if it encourages more European origin travelers to get on airplanes to come to the U.S., that's just going to put more people in the European airports that are going to be making it even more congested for those just connecting through. And then, Ben, one more listener question slash comment. And I'm not sure if it's a question or if it's a finer wine. I'll call it a little bit of both. You can decide. It's from Sean in New York. I flew last weekend from LaGuardia to Chicago here. There weren't a lot of options when we selected seats. So my fiance and I were seated in the window and an aisle as the middle seat was already booked. When we got settled in, our seatmate in the middle informed us that she had booked and paid for the middle seat and therefore she had complete rights to both armrests. That's, quote, the rule and proper protocol for air travel. I told her I'd never heard of that rule, but I'm sure we could figure it out. But then she proceeded to shove me off any sliver of the armrest if I dared to take up a portion of it. I finally told her she was rude and inconsiderate, but more importantly, that I would report her to the flight attendant if she shoved me again. After a few minutes, she apologized. I knew she was out of line, but was I? Very interesting uh, comment, and maybe this is a finer wine, I'm not sure. But I don't think you were out of line at all, Sean. I think this is an issue that I'm sure many of our listeners have opinions on. But I've never found it difficult to share an armrest with someone next to me when someone effectively takes the lower half of the armrest and someone takes the upper half of the armrest armrest. It seems to work. I don't see that many people when they're sharing an armrest lay their whole arm over the whole rest. So I actually think the traveler who bought and paid for the middle seat didn't have the right to claim both armrests as theirs, you know, on a real estate claim. I think that's bogus. And I think it was good, Sean, that, um, you called that person out on that to say, hey, we can work this out and you're kind of rude about that. The fact that she apologized after a few minutes probably means she thought about it 
and thought about, you know, I probably could have been nicer about that. And I think that sort of validates that what you did was probably the right thing. That's my view. What do you think, Chris? I think it gets into the big debate about, you know, are you allowed to push back your seat? Can you recline or not? What's the proper etiquette? I don't think anybody owns any rights to anything other than where they sit. So I think it's just a, a result of more aggressive behavior on aircraft nowadays. People stake out their claim and they want to have it their way. And we all are in this flying tube for two, three, five, ten hours, whatever it is. And so we got to we got to embrace humanity and figure out a way to get along. Let's put it that way. You know, at Spirit, when we removed the reclinability in our seats, we got so many complaints about that. And everyone who I spoke to complained. I said, would you at least admit that it's nice that the person in front of you can't recline on you? And they would all sort of sheepishly say, well, yeah, I guess that's a nice thing. (laughs) (laughs) So you're right. There's all kinds of things here. Airplanes are congested spaces. People can just get along and share the armrest and not recline on someone limiting their space or jamming their laptop into them or something. People can just be more uh, more rational than that, I think, Chris. Well, I always love people who, you know, like they said, people who say, like, they said, the experts said, like, what experts? Who, who said that you have the right to this? to this uh, armrest anyway. So who's they? Yeah, does it show it on your uh, boarding pass? Your seat plus two armrests? That's right. The contract of carriage. That's right. Well, with that, let's put this week's show to bed, but not before we give our shout-outs. And mine goes to Southwest Airlines for a very happy 51st birthday. Southwest is doing a frequent flyer sale around this, which is great. But importantly, 51 years for any company is fantastic. And Southwest has really been a benchmark for this industry around operational efficiency, about keeping prices in check, around being good to employees, shareholders, and the communities you serve. So a big shout out to 51 years and on to 51 years more. That's a good one. I'm not going to give a shout out. I'm going to give a shout down, Ben. Joseph Ferrati, the CEO of low-cost European airline Wizair, told employees at a virtual meeting last week that too many of them are taking time off for fatigue and that, quote, sometimes it's required to go the extra mile, close quote. The comment was made on this conference call, like I said, to all Wizair employees, including pilots and flight attendants who were part of the call. And it's already gotten some blowback from media and safety experts. Just want to say, Joe, buddy, not cool. Maybe you need a better PR guy. I'll just leave it there. Sounds like Joe was channeling his inner Elon Musk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, have a great week, everyone. And thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good one. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.